Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. For most women, pregnancy and birth are a time for celebration. It can also be a time of significant change in their bodies, hormones, diet, and sleep. These changes can worsen or bring on mental illnesses, such as depression and anxiety. According to the CMHA, 10 and 20% of pregnant women and new mothers are affected by perinatal mood and anxiety disorders during pregnancy or the first year after giving birth. And many of them are reluctant to report psychiatric symptoms because of feelings of shame and worry or perhaps thinking that their symptoms are just normal. Today, we're going to delve into this topic. I'm talking to Dr. Verinder Sharma, a psychiatrist in St. Joseph's Healthcare London's mental health program at Parkwood Institute. He specializes in diagnosis, treatment, and research of mood disorders and peripartum psychiatric illnesses. He's also a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Western University with a cross-appointment in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Dr. Sharma, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I mentioned some of the big picture statistics there right off the bat, including, here's another one here, that during the postpartum period, about 7.5% of women report experiencing depressive symptoms, and about 7% of pregnant women experience depression during pregnancy. That, again, is according to the Public Health Agency of Canada. Let's talk then a little bit about there's different types of mental illnesses. I understand postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. Can we talk a little bit first about postpartum depression? What is it? And what are some of the symptoms that are exhibited? So the term postpartum depression tells us that there is a depressive episode after delivery. There is some debate as to how to define the postpartum period. Normally, people think it is four weeks. However, we know that women remain at risk for either first onset or a relapse of depression for several months. So in research, for example, I usually think it's about three months after delivery when women have the increased risk, but then there are others who think that the risk period should be as long as 12 months after delivery. So the term postpartum depression, it means that women can have only depression. However, in others, it may be a depressive episode in the context of bipolar disorder. So the usual symptoms of depression include sadness, lacking pleasure, problem with sleep, and that is definitely falling asleep, staying asleep, poor concentration, and thoughts of dying, thoughts of suicide. So we know there are different severities of depression. For example, there was a study came out of UK not too long ago that found that 
about half of uh, women with depression during pregnancy had mild symptoms. So we really not only have to look at symptoms, but also the severity of symptoms and how those symptoms interfere with the daily functioning. So it's certainly not an uncommon illness. So usually the figure is about 15% of women have depression after delivery. And I mentioned briefly in the introduction there, but is it true that many women then are reluctant to seek help or treatment for these symptoms? They may think it's just normal or part of the changes that they're going through? That's right. So before we go into it, just another point that I would like to make is that it is becoming clear that a large number of women with postpartum depression really have onset of symptoms either during pregnancy or prior to pregnancy. So in other words, only 40% of women have first onset of depression after delivery. And you are absolutely right that there is a lot of reluctance to seek help. And there are different sort of factors that contribute to it. First of all, there is the stigma. Not only, you know, stigma by others, but also the self-stigma that maybe, you know, you feel guilty, you feel you are not a good enough mom. And so there's a lot of reluctance to seek help. And we also see that there is the minimizing the symptom, normalizing the experience. You know, everyone has a, a sadness after childbirth. That's true, you know, up to 80% of women have baby blues, but it is not depression. Depression is more than sadness. And the other factor that contribute to seeking help is concerns about medication, for example. You know, some moms want to breastfeed, and we know these medications pass through breast milk, so that is another concern. And finally, for some women, this is the first experience of depression. So they don't know what it feels like, you know. So, and sometimes it takes a while before women seek professional help. I'm glad you mentioned baby blues. I just wanted to ask about that. So baby blues is not a mental illness. Is that correct? That's right. So historically, postpartum mood disorders have been defined as baby blues or maternity blues, postpartum depression, and postpartum psychosis. So only two of these three entities are psychiatric illnesses. So baby blues is not a disorder, but it's, it's important because in some women, baby blues may evolve into a depressive episode. They may evolve into postpartum depression. The other thing here I want to mention is that there's a lot of awareness of baby blues, but there's also the increased recognition that there are baby pinks. So there are some women, they have about 15 to 20% of women immediately after delivery, there's a mood elevation. This is excessive joy. And even though mom is not getting enough sleep, but she's not tired, the mind is racing, you know, talking to people in the middle of the night, that kind of thing. These symptoms do not last more than a couple of days, so they do not require any treatment. However, the significance is that a number of these women then may develop an episode of depression. And so there's no need then, when we're talking about that baby blues and the, the opposite reaction, a woman should not necessarily 
seek treatment for that, right? That's right. Not for baby tanks, but be vigilant really to monitor these symptoms closely, you know, changing not only in mood, but sleep and how things evolve over time. And again, those symptoms, I, I suppose it must be difficult for a, a young mother to discern the difference, but those symptoms are milder and will only last for a couple of weeks. That's right. And sometimes it's very difficult to distinguish between the normal joy that accompanies childbirth and the baby pinks. However, if an individual has history of pre-existing illness and they develop these symptoms, then we really need to be monitoring uh, for uh, appearance or depressive symptoms or anxiety. So then let's talk a little bit about postpartum depression. Again, you mentioned some of the symptoms, excessive crying, difficulty bonding with the baby, withdrawal from family and friends, insomnia, fatigue, loss of energy, low self-esteem. How are these treated? What is the normal treatment that is, can be offered? To, or first of all, how does, how does a woman even seek treatment? So for some women, those symptoms may be the first appearance of depression. So there is no prior mm -hmm. history of mood and anxiety, and they develop depression after delivery. And we know women after birth of the first child are at greater risk for a number of psychiatric conditions compared to what happens subsequent to other deliveries. So they may have uh, the first onset of the disorder, or it may happen in the context of pre-existing illness. We, in our clinic, get uh, referrals from family physicians, uh, you know, midwives, uh, public health nurses, and the obstetricians. So the first thing that really needs to happen is a good history taking, not to have a, a better understanding of that particular episode after delivery, but also what was happening prior to that episode. So usually what I do is I go back to the first time women start having symptoms. And it is, it's not uncommon to have the symptom onset around the time of puberty because there are a lot of hormonal changes. So it tells us about the hormonal sensitivity. And a number of these women will have premenstrual sort of mood and anxiety symptoms. And then either recurrence in pregnancy or postpartum. So a thorough history taking is extremely important and also to have an understanding about the other risk factors i.e. the family history of psychiatric illness and including whether these episodes in family members happened after delivery because if this evidence that there are peripartum kind of mood disorder then tells us that the risk is higher for other family members. And it's important to assess the safety issues, safety of the mom and safety of the baby. And the other thing we have to keep in mind is that when we look at psychiatric disorders in the postpartum period, it is not pure, meaning it's not only depression. A large number of these women will have anxiety symptoms. They may have obsessions, compulsions, you know, and feeling sort of anxious and, and nervous. So it's important to have that information before we sort of formulate what the treatment plan should be. 
And in terms of treatment, it depends on the severity. You know, if it's sort of mild to moderate depression, then we're looking at psychotherapy. And if it's severe depression, then we are looking at the use of medications. And just to stress, uh, you did mention that in severe cases, obviously the mother can be prey to thoughts of suicide or self-harm or even harming the baby. That's correct. That's right. So we need to assess the safety issues. And here I would like to emphasize Mm -hmm. that some women, they have obsessive thoughts of harming the baby. They have obsessive thoughts of harming themselves. So the risk for suicide is not high in these, these women. But we need to make a distinction whether these are sort of obsessive concerns or whether these are thoughts of suicide. And then now this differs somewhat, does it? I know we've touched on a little bit, postpartum anxiety, correct? Which, uh, according to what I've got here, affects one in five women. Symptoms of, again, some of them sound very similar, excessive worrying, anxious feelings of being out of control, irrational fears about things that may be unlikely to happen. Can you talk a little bit about that, yeah. the, the anxiety? So... It's only over the past several years that I have become much more aware that the word anxiety may be used to describe a number of feelings and experiences. So it's important that we know exactly what kind of anxiety it is. So for some women, it may be sort of generalized anxiety, sort of free-floating, you know, feeling nervous, anxious, and worried. In another uh, women, it may be panic attacks. You know, they have spontaneous panic attacks during the day, sometimes waking up at night because of the anxiety. And in others, it may be they have a sort of history of, let's say post-traumatic stress disorder and then uh, some of that anxiety sort of comes back in the postpartum period. And then uh, anxiety related to obsessions and compulsions, you know, I might Hmm. drop the baby, you know, going down the stairs and some moms are excessively worried, for example, about the safety of the baby, keep on checking at night if the baby is breathing okay and fears whether I'm a good mom, whether I'm feeding the baby properly. And sometimes that worry is limited not only to the newborn, it also then extends to other family members. So I talk Mm. about the what-if thoughts, you know, the husband leaves home, then worrying excessively, they might get involved in a car accident, you know, those kind of things. And that awareness is only over the past few years. And what I find is that anxiety seems to be more of a phenomenon in the, in the postpartum period than even depression. So the study I was referring to initially from UK, they found, for example, 11% of women with depression in early pregnancy and 15% of women had anxiety. And the other fascinating thing is when we engage in treatment, sometimes there's a response as far as the symptoms of depression are concerned, but some women continue to struggle with anxiety. So it is extremely common that when we measure the response to our treatments, that not only we look at depression, but related symptoms as well i.e. anxiety, obsessions, compulsions. And again, some of these, uh, talking again about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, panic attacks, as you mentioned, physical feelings like uh, rapid heartbeat, shortness of breath, 
dizziness. These are all part of this. And as you said, the obsessions about harm to the baby and so forth. Now, so often I, I imagine that medication is used perhaps to help treat depression or or panic attacks or anxiety. Is it safe to use these same medications with a new mother? It is. So before we prescribe the medication, it's really very important to first discuss the reason why we are using medication and to also have some discussion as to what the medication is supposed to do, what are the effects, what are the benefits of the medication use. So our job really is to provide information so women can make informed decisions. So, for example, there are some women who I feel should be taking medication, but uh, they are not interested. So we need to monitor, you know, because, you know, they, they remain at risk for having depression. And over time, sometimes they, they may change their mind. But in terms of the selection of the medication, if somebody has been treated with the medication before, they tolerated it well, and it was effective, so generally we use that medication. And starting in a low dose, because if this is the first time we are using medication, there may be issues tolerating the medication and a very good understanding of the side effects, you know, what to monitor for in terms of side effects, look for. And the other thing is that if the depression begins for the first time after childbirth, these women are also at risk of developing bipolar disorder, especially if there's a family history of bipolar disorder. So we have to be very careful about the use of the antidepressant in these women that it may trigger a manic episode. And again, that's the information that I shared with my patients, that if there are any sort of concerns, especially in women who are using medication the first time, to really inform us as soon as possible. I guess an obvious question when it comes to medications, and I'm sure many new mothers have this thought, are, med are the medications safe if the mother is breastfeeding? Is there some way that the medications can transfer to the... The baby. All these medications pass through breast milk, so we have to ensure the, you know, use the medication that we think is, is the safest and effective. In terms of the, the breastfeeding, I mean, we, we encourage it, it is good, but in some women, especially, there are a lot of awakenings at night time and it really takes its toll on maternal mental health. So some women, for example, they choose to do the pumping to ensure that they have more uninterrupted sleep. So yeah, safety of the medication in, in women who are breastfeeding is, is very important. And it's probably important we should touch on the fact that there are non-medication strategies. That's right. Simple things such as cuddling your baby or getting enough sleep. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's right. All those things, you know, paying attention to diet, exercising, relaxation, and those are all good things. So it really depends on the severity. And the other thing I should mention is that sometimes the depression disappears on its own. But we, we don't know how common that is. I mean, individuals, for example, that I see, they come to me because the depression is persisting. But I'm sure there are some people in the community, there is depression, and then it sort of disappears on its own. And obviously there's a role for 
the father or the partner or other family members, right? Is that how important is that in your experience for the husband perhaps to or the spouse to come forward and, and try to encourage the partner to, to seek help? Is that an important part of the, the process? It's extremely important, extremely important. And that involvement really should begin as soon as possible. So because they may have questions, you know, about the their fears about, of the recurrence of the disorder. And then there may be fears about the safety of the medication. There may be fears about the genetic transmission of the illness. So it's it's very important that the fathers become involved as soon as possible. And we have also seen some cases where, perhaps due to sleep deprivation, that the father's mental health is also affected in the postpartum period. So we had a very interesting case of this individual. I was extremely concerned, actually, about having a manic episode, and she did very well. She's on medication, but the husband really ended up having uh, mental health issues at that time. And can you judge variety of symptoms and conditions, variety of uh, treatment, I suppose, and medications? How successful is treatment? usually, in most cases? That's a very good question. So when we assess, let's say, the effectiveness of the medications, we are measuring that by a certain reduction in the amount of depression. So, and we say there's a response to the medication if there is at least 50% reduction in symptoms of depression. So that means there are some women who are still highly symptomatic, what we may think of them as responders. They still have symptoms of depression. That, I think, is something that we should be paying more attention to, that we should be really striving for elimination of symptoms rather than just a reduction in symptoms. So all the studies that I've looked at, a number of women continue to have residual symptoms. And the other thing is not only we measure depression, we also look at anxiety and other symptoms. And it's important also to use measures that, you know, of these questionnaires filled out by women. So they tell us as to how they experience the effectiveness of the medication, because sometimes there is a sort of discrepancy. I may think somebody's doing well, and they may think very differently. If a woman has experienced this, some of these conditions or symptoms during the first child, is it also more likely that they will experience it again? What are, how does that play out? So... Before I answer that, we are now also seeing some women who do not have mental illness, but they are very concerned because of the family history of psychiatric illness. So if the depression happened after first delivery, then the risk of it coming back is higher compared to if it happens for the first time after the second or the third delivery. So it is something about the depression being triggered by the first delivery that increases the risk. And that's not only is relevant to depression, but a number of psychiatric disorders. So there are some women who remain at risk of having relapses after subsequent deliveries, but then we also see some women who have episodes only after delivery. So they can have relapses 
limited to delivery after each delivery or some of the deliveries but then some go on to have episodes that are happening at other times as well. And again, is there a, a sort of a genetic component? Do you find that women who experience this, perhaps it's already been experienced by their mothers or in their family? Is that? Yeah, so genetic factors clearly play a role. It depends on the illness. So the illness that we find uh, more genetic evidence is uh, bipolar disorder. It is sometimes very difficult to elicit the family history of psychiatric illness because some people may not be aware of it. It may not have been diagnosed. So that clearly plays a role. So it's important not only to know about the family history, but also family history of psychiatric illness triggered by childbirth. So now I'm finding, you know, the grandmother having issues, then the mother, and then, then the person. But genetics is just one of the factors, you know. Um, we, there are a number of other factors that we have to consider as well. We've talked about postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. You talked about obsessive compulsive disorder. And we touched on briefly, but I, in some very rare cases, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, there is something called postpartum psychosis, right? Where this is obviously just a very extreme right. example of the, some of the disorders we were talking about. About one in 500 to one in 1,000 women have postpartum psychosis. So similar to the non-specific nature of words like postpartum depression, for example, postpartum anxiety, postpartum psychosis is a generic term that simply tells us that there is a psychotic episode after delivery. And the illness that's most commonly associated with psychosis is bipolar disorder. So we recently completed a study. We looked at women with bipolar 1 disorder. That is a, it's a rather rare illness. But we found that of women who had a relapse of bipolar 1 disorder in the postpartum period, 38% of these women had mania with psychosis. So what that means is, that if we can identify these women early on, meaning in pregnancy, there are clearly things we can do to prevent it. So in my opinion, postpartum psychosis should be eminently preventable, eminently preventable, because we know who is at risk and we can identify them early on. And there are things we can do to reduce or eliminate that risk. So we know, for example, the sleep loss plays an extremely important trigger. So we have had some cases where we thought women were at an extremely high risk for a psychotic episode, but becoming involved in pregnancy in their care, close monitoring and detection of emerging symptoms and using medication to improve sleep is amazing how effective that strategy is. So it's a serious condition because it poses a risk to mom's safety and baby's safety. So when you hear of cases of maternal suicide and infanticide, it is really postpartum psychosis. And we talked at the beginning about the stigma and the reluctance of many women and their families to seek help. Do you have a sense of how the percentage of women that are affected by this that perhaps 
were unaware of or are never reporting or never seeking treatment or how many people actually come forward and report these problems? Yeah, the number of individuals who are referred is very small. It is still the minority. And the stigma, you know, remains a, a huge issue. Interestingly, what I find is there's less stigma for postpartum depression compared to mental illness in general because of the effect of hormonal changes and so on and so forth. So things are getting better because some people, you know, with lived experiences are sharing their stories. And the research sort of showing the uh, major contribution of hormonal changes, so it's changing, but still a long way to go. Wow. It's fascinating. We're going to introduce briefly a little deviation from normal, but our producer, Kelsey Brake, who's had some personal experience with what we're discussing. Kelsey, you've maybe got a, a comment or an observation or a question for Dr. Sharma? One of the things that you mentioned, Dr. Sharma, is not feeling like you're being a good mom. Moms who go through this, that's always the worry. But I think from my experience, I had a pre-diagnosed mental illness before I got pregnant. And that was my biggest worry is like, how am I going to be able to manage my mental illness and caring for my children? Or is it going to get worse during pregnancy? And I'm not sure whether or not there are many women that come to you before they get pregnant to start talking about what does that look like in their care? And, and are there strategies that can be put in place to help them even from the beginning of their journey so that it doesn't get worse during pregnancy with all the hormones? Is that something you see? Do more women come forward? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good question. So we are seeing more of that. Luckily, we are seeing now more women being referred for preconception counseling. I mean, they are planning a pregnancy. And the other thing is maybe we need to even go back a bit further that if somebody has psychiatric illness, that we are careful about some medication. So, for example, if somebody is bipolar disorder, and we should not use valproic acid, you know, if this person is going to have a child. So the pre-pregnancy consultation is happening more now, and that's a very encouraging sign. It gives you an opportunity to really address your concerns, the questions that you have, uh, or, or your partner. And um, the other thing is to also to have some kind of plan in place. You know, once I become pregnant, I mean, what's going to happen? How often you think I should be seen? and how the treatment is going to be. And we know that plays a, a huge role because there are some medications that we are concerned about in pregnancy. So those changes could be made prior to pregnancy. And what we find is that still a large number of pregnancies are unplanned, especially in people with bipolar disorder. So what happens is you find out about the pregnancy, you kind of are concerned, you stop the medication abruptly, and that increases the risk of a relapse. So studies that have looked at the relapse in pregnancy, we know it changes. It's, it's higher in the first trimester, and that in part may be due to the sudden discontinuation of the medication and having episodes. So this is extremely important, that there be preconception counseling, which gives 
also us an opportunity to alleviate some of the concerns, some of the fears, which are common. Because, but sometimes you think you are alone. You know what I mean? There's nobody has these kind of issues. So it's very important. Yeah, when you say you, you feel like you're alone, I think it's one of those things. I mean, each individual's journey with mental illness is different. But I know for me, with my anxiety, I thought, oh, gosh, like, am I going to pass this on to my kids? And so I think speaking with yourself and with my family physician, it was really helpful to get some of those strategies to manage those feelings. But one of the things, too, that I wanted to ask you about was the hormones. Like, it's hard when you have a pre-existing mental illness to know how are the hormones going to affect that? And is there any way to predict what symptoms may get worse? Or is there anything that you say to women that, that can help with their worries about that? Yeah, again, another wonderful question. So when we talk about postpartum disorders, in, in some ways, it's kind of misleading because we don't in keep, keep in mind the pre-existing illness. Most of the women that we see in our clinic have pre-existing illness. I mean, new episodes can begin during pregnancy or postpartum, but um, a lot of people have the illness before. And it's better to take that approach because we have a lot of information about the pre-existing illness. We know what they have responded to, and we also know the risk, and things can be done to improve the pregnancy and postpartum outcomes. So in terms of the hormonal changes, it's not the amount by which the hormones drop, it's really the sensitivity to that hormone change. So every person, for example, woman, when they deliver, there's going to be a drop in the level of estrogen and progesterone, but only 15% of women, let's say, have depression. So that means 85% of women with the hormonal changes do not develop depression. And the same thing about sleep as well. Sleep loss is very common, but the number of women who develop these disorders is small. The other fascinating thing is that the recurrence is not true to type, meaning somebody may have a depressive disorder, but in the first pregnancy, there is first onset of panic attacks, or there may be first onset of obsessions and compulsion. And it may be a different story after the second delivery, for example. And that I really find fascinating because there is the one sort of trigger, i.e. childbirth. We know there's more than that, but for sake of discussion, one trigger. But it's triggering different types of mental illness. You know, it's triggering depression, it's triggering anxiety, it's triggering OCD, it's triggering bipolar disorder. So now, you know, I begin to wonder whether these are truly distinct illnesses or their manifestations of the same process at different times, you know. So taking that approach, I think we will have better results rather than targeting, you know, this is depression, this is anxiety, because that gives rise to polypharmacy. We are using too many medications, and that increases the side effect burden for the, for the mom. Well, that's fascinating to hear. Also terrifying <laughs> as a mom and as someone who has several friends who are going through the process of having children now, you never kind of know what to expect. And I think that's one of the reasons I was really interested in doing this episode, because not knowing what to expect is the scariest part. And so I think it's so important 
to encourage women to speak up and seek help and ask questions and try to prepare themselves because just becoming a mom in its own is overwhelming sometimes. And so we want them to feel supported. But one of the things that I had no idea, and again, had very good support throughout my pregnancies, um, but I had no idea of the changes that would happen after I stopped breastfeeding. And so I breastfed my first son for 15 months and my second son for a little bit longer than that. And I had no idea that the hormone change at that time, because it was so far from also when I gave birth, because it was more than a year, I didn't know that the change in hormone would affect me so severely. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's something that women need to know that can happen. So two things. One was, you know, not knowing what you are going to experience. So I'm going to address that comment first, and then the breastfeeding issue. So what is becoming clear is, that rather than focusing on symptoms of different disorders, if we focus on symptoms that cut across various diagnoses, that we will have a much better success. And that's what we are finding out in our studies. So for example, the sleep loss or insomnia is, is common in women with OCD, with panic disorder, with the major, major depressive disorder, with bipolar disorder. So if we focus on that, not only we are targeting a specific disorder, we are targeting all disorders. Okay, so in terms of the breastfeeding, the cessation of breastfeeding, especially if it's abrupt, we know there's a huge drop in the level of prolactin. And that may increase the risk of depression. But in some people, it's difficult to know because whether, you know, it's affected the postpartum period or it's the effect of the discontinuation of the antidepressant. And the third thing is, when you stop breastfeeding, around the same time, there is the resumption of the menstrual periods. And some women become more sensitive to that change at, at, at that time. But having said that, we published two cases. One was case of a, a woman who had episodes of depression limited only to the cessation of breastfeeding. And she did not have anything before, did not have anything afterwards. And in this, we used antidepressants. There was not a very good response. And then we used a medication to increase the level of prolactin and there was a good response. And then we had another individual, the sudden stopping of the uh, breastfeeding led to a, a manic mixed episode. And again, the symptoms resolved quickly. So I then became intrigued because we don't talk about these issues when we talk about postpartum depression. We just talk about what happens after childbirth. And if you look at the literature in the 18th, 19th century, I mean, these people knew what they, they were doing. They made a distinction between the postpartum period, and that was four weeks, and then there was the lactational period to highlight the changes that take place at these times, the hormonal changes. So there was a term called lactational mania, for example, that we don't find it now. So coming back to the issue of postpartum, so it's not only what happens at delivery, also what happens in pregnancy, late pregnancy, what happens after delivery and after the cessation of breastfeeding and the resumption of menstrual periods. So again, highlighting that it is not just one set of changes, multiple sort of changes may be contributing to what we see in the postpartum period. 
what I hope and I think what Ian hopes for people to walk away from this episode with is the best thing you can do for yourself is just speak up and ask for help and start early. So I think what I'm hearing you say, too, is like start as early as you can and and have those conversations with your family and your family doctor and seek out help, you know, even before you're pregnant, because then it normalizes and and helps you expect, oh, okay, this could happen. And if it does, Mm -hmm. this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. The most important thing, too, is remembering that you're not alone. And that's, I think, the message I wanted to get across is you're not alone in this. And it's a normal part of life and being a mom and being a parent. As you said, you used the word terrifying. It's fascinating and sobering and daunting and terrifying. And I think that hopefully information like this can uh, be of service to women and families out there who are experiencing this. And I just uh, thank you, Kelsey, for sharing your very um, invaluable insight And uh, Dr. Sharma, thank you, sir, for for taking us through this topic today. Thank you. And Kelsey, my sincere thanks as well. You know, when people speak up about these experiences, it goes a long way in terms of destigmatizing the illness, you know. And I find what I say sometimes is not as impactful as it comes from someone with lived experience. So, So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sharma. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us. And join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London. Or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy.